All right, and welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you January 18, 2017, and you're listening to the Post Money Plan Podcast, where we demystify the complexities of finance and economics. So today's episode, we're going to be discussing inflation and covering some of the basics there. This will be a two-part discussion. Today in part one, we'll be discussing what inflation is, the impacts of inflation, and some of the causes of inflation. Then in part two, we'll discuss how inflation is measured, the difference between CPI and reality, or the difference between inflation as it's reported and reality. And then we'll finish up with what you should do personally about inflation. Today's episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan, as well as Murray Williams and Reed Ianson. Welcome to the show, guys. Great to be here. So, Reed, if you could just introduce yourself. Yeah, I, uh, I currently hold a master's in economics, and I'm working as a healthcare economist here in Houston. And Murray? Yeah, my name is Murray Williams, and I'm an emerging fund manager. I'm a former stock and bond broker, and also an, an economist and a mathematician. All right. So let's just kick us off with Reed, if you could, to cover what inflation means. Yeah, so inflation is really just a story about prices. When you make purchasing decisions on a weekly or monthly basis, you are making a decision about what you're willing to pay for certain goods and services. Inflation is how these prices are changing over time. Inflation in particular is how these prices are increasing over time. And at the base of it, this inflation can dramatically affect the purchasing decisions that you make. And that's at its core, that's what inflation is. And then, of course, deflation would be the opposite of that? Yeah, deflation is the rate at which prices are decreasing. And it's a form of inflation, but basically the only difference is instead of prices going up over time, they are going down over time. And I would say another way to look at that it's the same thing, but another way to look at it would be it's a decrease in the purchasing power of the actual currency. Correct. Yes. I think we've all heard the story from our parents or grandparents where they say things like, I used to go to the store and buy a handful of candy for a nickel. <laughs> now it doesn't buy anything. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's yeah, where that's coming from. The gallon of gas was five cents. <laughs> We're hearing that story, too. Yeah, we often look at that in negative terms. That is, oh, why does gas cost me so much more today? Or why do goods cost so much more? But it's not necessarily a negative, especially if your wages are increasing through time. And that's an important point. So don't necessarily, you know, we think of that statement as a negative and don't necessarily put it in that context when you think about inflation either. Yeah, I, I think to me inflation is just a general devaluation of the currency over time, independent of the supply and demand of the underlying goods and services. I think a famous economist once said, he said that the price of everything you see for goods and services is the supply and demand of two things. It's the supply and demand of the underlying goods and services and the supply and demand of the underlying currency. And so basically if there's more dollars floating around in the banking and the financial system, you're going to have greater inflation. You're going to have price increases. If you have less dollars floating around, you're going to have price decreases. Likewise, if you have, if there's greater economic output and there's massive economic growth and the money supply does not keep up with that, you're going to see a decrease in prices. So it's a factor of economic growth plus money supply growth. No, that's correct because 
because obviously when you have more dollars chasing the same number of goods, you will see prices increase over time. And the same goes for if you have fewer dollars chasing the same number of goods, prices will not increase at such a rapid rate typically. That's a function of both money growth and economic activity. Right. And I was brushing up on history, and I was reading Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. He's got a chapter called Digression of Silver, and he kind of brings up examples when and this is before this is when money was all gold and silver coinage. And he said when a new a new gold and silver mine was discovered in, in the New World, and all that gold and silver was brought in the financial system, it didn't really increase the prosperity of that country. All it did was just increase prices. And you notice that dynamic. Well, yeah, and that's a very important point to touch upon is that inflation does not, does never affects real economic growth. It's just a construct of a monetary system. You might have more dollars in a system, but that doesn't mean anyone is better off. And there's a funny meme that I recently read, and it was that this five-year-old walks up to his mom and says, hey, I wish we all had infinite amount of dollars, and we could buy whatever we wanted. And then the mother says, no, that's incorrect, because obviously if everyone has infinite dollars, those dollars are going to be worth infinitely less, because they're going to be chasing the same number of goods anyway. That sounds like a really complicated meme. I I think that's actually a good lead-in to discussing the impacts of inflation. So, similar to what the anecdote that Murray was saying, I've heard that when they were exploring for the mythical city of... No, Montezuma or whatever. Yeah, it was was supposed to be in the Mexican jungle, like a city made of gold. And there was a Spanish explorer who was looking for the city. They found a ton of gold and started exporting it back to Spain. And then they found that the purchasing power of the gold was going down because of that. But anyway, in terms of the impact of inflation, I would say in today's world, for an individual thinking about your own personal situation, what does inflation mean to me? Or what is the impact? Like if you were just sitting on your dollars in an account for a long period of time, that's where you would see the equivalent loss of value to your savings because the purchasing power of those dollars are going down over time if you have positive inflation. And that would translate to you being able to purchase less things with the same amount of dollars. And the way I see it is that inflation, unfortunately, hurts the poor a lot more than the rich because the cost of living is a lot flatter than incomes. And so a rich person may eat some expensive food, but they might also eat fast food. And if they go into McDonald's and they buy a burger and it costs them a few dollars or if it costs them double that, it's not a big deal to them, but for a poor person begging on the street and they, maybe they get a dollar, they go into the McDonald's and they try to buy a burger on the dollar menu and it goes from one to two, then that's a big deal for them. The other thing is rich people tend to own assets that go up in value with inflation, whereas poor people don't, like stocks, for example. Yes, very important. Real assets are not going to lose value with inflation because they revalue with inflation. It is strictly a dollar construct which is important because if you want to defend yourself against inflation, which we'll talk about further on in this podcast, you want to be sure to be investing in things that will revalue themselves as inflation increases over time. And that's important. In my mind, it's like inflation is not necessarily a universally bad thing. In in, in a lot of situations, it can be good, especially if you're a homeowner. 
Like, for instance, if you own a home and you've got a mortgage on that house that's denominated in dollars, especially if you've got a 30-year mortgage and there's like massive inflation, that's going to be really good for the homeowner because he's making payments, the, the same fixed payment, in steadily decreasing or devaluing dollars. And so it's basically, inflation is really bad for holders of debt. For instance, people who buy bonds or banks who issue mortgages, but inflation is really good for the owners of debt, like, for instance, people who borrow money. That is a terrific thing for inflation. Yeah, that's a good point. Yes, absolutely. And I, I think it's important to note that we are talking about changes in inflation. So this can be kind of difficult at first to kind of wrap your head around. If you have inflation that stays constant at 2%, it's not a problem. It's a problem when you have inflation that fluctuates over time because then it becomes much more difficult for a lender or someone who's paying wages to account for changes in prices within an economy. And so it's important to note that we are strictly talking about changes in inflation, which can be kind of confusing at first, I think. Well, that brings up a good point that in economics, predictability is valuable. The more predictable things are, the better it is for investment, because the more sure people are of outcomes, the more you can allocate your investments with confidence and you are more willing to go and invest in something. But when inflation becomes unstable, like you were saying, or if you descend into cases of what we've had in the past of hyperinflation in different countries, then nobody knows what the prices are going to be tomorrow. So then they stop investing. So then the entire economy seizes up. Then you have a case where we had in the late 1970s, we had massive inflation, really high interest rates, and it was a so-called inflationary spiral, whereas people were thinking, well, the prices of everything just keeps going up. I should just buy all these consumer goods now before the price goes up. And then that just increases inflation and the businesses start raising prices and interest rates go up. And you have what you call the inflationary cycle. Then the minimum people want the minimum wage increased because inflation keeps going up. It just kind of feeds to that. So yeah, you, they can create like a, a feedback loop, an inflationary collapse. Yeah. Yes, and I think it should be noted that the Federal Reserve since the early 1980s under Paul Volcker has done a very good job at regulating price stability or inflation within the United States in particular. Yeah, I agree with that. Paul Volcker did a great job. Uh, ben Bernanke, not so much, but Paul Volcker definitely did. He was really good at creating the, the price stability. In terms of FedSpeak, the challenge moving forward is not rapid inflation, but maybe theoretical underpinnings of what drives inflation and its relationship to economic output. It's becoming very difficult to gauge that in a globalized context. Okay, so then moving on to causes of inflation. We've kind of touched on these things, but... Reed, if you could just iterate a little bit further on what when we were going over what inflation is, then about the causes. Yeah, um, before I state these factors, it should be understood that inflation is very difficult to predict. And especially since the financial crisis, many of our economic models have partially failed to give us expectations about where inflation would be based on the factors that I'm going to give. And so I would say currently right now, we're in a period of trying to figure out how can we adjust our expectations of inflation, because it has been proven that it's difficult to do this. But I'm going to list five factors, but I really want to put the preface on that these are not end-all-be-all factors. And there's other things that are happening that we don't even necessarily know about, or we're trying to figure out currently within an economic context. But 
biggest five factors are first is fluctuating output. So typically with GDP rises or you're producing more goods or incomes are going up within an economy, inflation will increase. There's a relationship between increases in output and increases in inflation. Secondly, changes in inflation expectations. So firms can definitely drive inflation, especially because they're the price setters within an economy. So if firms are forecasting forward inflation, largely by looking at the past, which is how they set inflation expectations, if their forward forecasts largely reflect what has happened in the past, you can expect inflation to stay relatively steady because they're not making any assumptions that they're going to see higher inflation into the future. And so inflation expectations are really important, especially from a firm's perspective. A third factor are price shocks. This occurs when the price for a particular good changes unexpectedly. So this is very common with oil and gas in particular. And late in 2014, we saw increases in price for crude oil, and that will typically put upward pressure on inflation because prices are rising for that good, and that good is an input into many other things within our economic system. Fourth is changes in the inflation target. So this has to do with the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve looks at two different things, the short and the long run. The short run is typically what they do to regulate output based on some long-run average, and their long-run inflation target is typically what they're interested in hitting over time. So you might have fluctuations in inflation from month to month, but maybe over two to three years, they're trying to hit some given inflation target. If they change this target, you will see a very direct impact, especially within financial markets, of changes in inflation. It's the long-run rate of inflation. So if the Fed assumes, hey, our long-run rate of 2% is now going to be 3%, you'll see a rise in inflation in the short run. And the same goes for if they say, hey, we want to lower our long-run rate of inflation, you'll immediately see a fall in the short run rate of inflation as well. And this largely is firms feeding on this information that the Fed projects into the United States economy or any central bank for that matter. And just for a clarification there, the Fed currently talks about long-run inflation of targeting 2%, sometimes suggesting moving towards 3%. Yes, right you? now it's 2%, and it has been shown over the past eight years that it has been very difficult to get to this rate of inflation, largely because of many different factors, but a weak economy and a lack of investment have really shown to be reasons why there have been difficulties setting this inflation target. So if you go and look at data, government data, you will not see inflation really hitting 2% very much over the past eight years, which is why you hear the Fed talk about it so much. Which brings up an interesting point, actually, in terms of the whole feedback cycle of causes and impacts of inflation, where if firms in economic speak, meaning companies and institutions and all that, if they feel uncertainty about the future, and if you don't know what's going to happen in a year or two years from now, you say, I'm going to hold off on this big purchase decision or this big investment decision. So you decide not to invest. So by doing so, that's decreasing what we call the velocity of money. And when transactions aren't taking place and people aren't buying things, then the free market will try to price lower until people make those purchases. So when people aren't making purchases and investments, that can cause deflation or if they're paying off debts. 
But, I mean, that's important, and, and it should be noted, deflation is, from a traditional economic standpoint, it's evil, it's terrible, because deflation causes people to consume in the future, and that's not good, especially for a U.S. economy that's driven by consumers, by individual purchasers. The last factor that influences inflation is demand shocks, and demand shocks are those things such as changes in technology or economic booms abroad, which will tend to influence inflation or economic downturns as well. So demand shocks can be very difficult to recognize. All I will say about demand shocks is there can be external, unexpected events that might happen internationally or might happen technologically that can change inflation but it can sometimes be unclear how it will influence inflation. And that's very uninformative, but that's kind of how a demand shock works. And those are kind of our five factors. So when you're looking at inflation and trying to understand where it's heading or why it's going in a particular direction, these five factors can work as strong barometers. But like I said, these factors are somewhat in flux because dynamics of globalization have changed many of our expectations about how we think prices change within any given economic system. So keep that in mind. That's very important. To me, I think the two biggest causes of inflation, number one, I agree with you as far as the demand shocks. That's obvious. It's like with, especially when it comes to the price of oil and the price of food. But it really, the number one cause of inflation is Fed policy. And this is really important for, for viewers to understand is that when the Fed increases liquidity, they basically, they do it by buying bonds. And they buy bonds and they, with money, they create out of thin air. And they've been doing this ever since the Fed came into being in the year 1913. And one of the precursors of inflation has always been like a massive government debt. And a lot of people talk about the history of, of Germany and the Weimar Republic and the massive inflation, but what I'd be able to understand is what actually caused Germany to devalue their currency. And the cause was the massive war reparations that Germany was required to pay after World War One. Because after World War One, and England and France told Germany, you got to pay us all these Deutschmarks. Right. Germany said, okay, well, we'll pay all these Deutschmarks. And they devalued their total currency, which made them all worthless which basically screwed England and France, and it kind of screwed the German people too and the German economy. But I mean, that's the number one factor that causes inflation over time, independent of, of demand shocks, is basically the Fed buying bonds and, de and slowly devaluing the currency. Another factor, which a lot of people really don't understand, is how the banking system creates money. And this is really important because I believe that it's the leverage of the banking sector that causes our cyclical boom and bust cycles. And how it works basically is, so let's say, Reed, you have a hundred bucks, and I'm going to make Dallas the bank in this, and this is going to be the bad guy. <laughs> you deposit hundred dollars with Dallas, and so you've got a savings account now with, with Dallas the bank. Well, let's say Dallas decides to loan me Murray a hundred dollars. Okay. And so I've got $100 walking around now, but you read, you think you have $100, but you really don't. And this is what the banking sector has done. And the thing is, is that it doesn't last forever. The currency will collapse when there's a massive wave of bank failures, especially like what we saw in the year 2008 and in the early 1930s. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a basic multiplier effect. Typically, how that's going to work is a bank's going to receive $100. You're going to have a 10% mm -hmm. deposit, or you're going to have a 10% reserve requirement, which means that they'll lend out 90 of that, and then it will work through many other banks. 
That's, right. that's not a problem if banks are making non-toxic loans. It becomes a problem when banks are making loans that have a high amount of risk. So when they may make speculative loans, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also important to note that, yes, it is true, central bank policy can drive inflation, but I think it's also important to note, in the past eight years, this idea has been somewhat questioned because you've had the United States in particular who have printed a lot of money and we see no inflation. You've seen the same in Europe. You've seen the same thing in Japan. And so I think that, yes, this is totally true for emerging economies especially. But when we start to talk about developed economies that are very much viewed as safe havens for investment, especially the United States, there is not a very clear and direct link anymore between printing a bunch of money and inflation. And you can look at the past eight years, and I just don't see a clear link between the Fed's huge quantitative easing programs, and yet they have not been able to boost inflation almost at all. And I think this really speaks to the fact that inflation, especially within these developed economies that serve as safe havens for investment dollars, I think investment really plays a big role in driving inflation, not necessarily the central bank. The central bank is just another player in a very big financial market. I would not have said this eight years ago. But I think this has proven to be true, especially look at last year alone. The Federal Reserve says, yes, we see inflation moving up to maybe 2.5%. We're probably going to have three rate rises in that time, which means we're going to be printing less money. They didn't. They literally raised rates one time, and that was largely for expectations about 2017. It had nothing really to do with 2016, and so I think that's really important to note moving forward when it comes to discussing inflation. Well, I think there's contrary factors because the money supply thing is an inflationary factor, but then at the same time, if people are putting off investment decisions, that's a deflationary factor, so they can cancel each other out. And I would yeah. say in economic terms and the global economy, eight years still isn't the long run, in my opinion. So the full implications of decisions or monetary policy over the last few years, I don't think it's going to play out overnight. But the way I think of it also is that the economy is kind of like an unwieldy beast that's very huge and has a lot of moving parts to it. And in terms of monetary policy, it can be like using your finger to push a sumo wrestler. You can push really, really hard and maybe they're not going to move for a long time. But then all of a sudden you get them to start tipping and then there's nothing you could do to stop them from falling over. That's the way I see it. Yeah, I think that's really good. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I mean, the economy is really complicated, and it's really about the study of human behavior and how people will react to certain things. And what's interesting is, is the so-called group thing, how people tend to think in herds. One of the things I agree with you, Reed, is like I, I was going back and looking through the money supply growth in the late 1970s, and there really wasn't a lot of money supply growth as measured by the Fed during when we had this massive inflation. So something had to be there with the behavior of the people that was independent of the Federal Reserve, what, what they were doing. So, oh, yeah. I mean, well, yes. yeah. I mean, that was that, that inflation was driven by the oil price shock of the early 1970s. <laughs> right. Yeah. And then you had a Fed who did not understand that it was a demand shock or a price shock and still continued to print money anyway. Now, not at a high rate, but they were definitely not dealing with the problem. And that's why you needed a guy like Paul Holzer to come in and kind of fight that trend. 
Yeah, and Paul kind of came in and jacked up interest rates. What we were seeing, twenty percent interest rates, and eventually it got inflation under control. So, you know. and why is that so opposed? Because that means that he's going to send the economy into recession, right? And that's never something that people like to hear. It's like taking your medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biting the bullet. So that's all we have time for today in part one. Join us next time to continue for part two. Thank you for joining us, and we'll catch you next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast.